0: Chapter twenty two of the Blythedale Romance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter twenty two Fauntleroy. Five and twenty years ago, at the epoch of this story, there dwelt in one of the Middle States a man whom we shall call Fauntleroy. A man of wealth and magnificent tastes, and prodigal expenditure. His home might almost be styled a palace, his habits in the ordinary sense princely. His whole being seemed to have crystallized itself into an external splendor, wherewith he glittered in the eyes of the world, and had no other life than upon this gaudy surface. He had married a lovely woman whose nature was deeper than his own, but his affection for her though it showed largely was superficial like all his other manifestations and developments he did not so truly keep this noble creature in his heart as wear her beauty for the most brilliant ornament of his outward state and there was born to him a child a beautiful daughter whom he took from the beneficent hand of god with no just sense of her immortal value but as a man already rich in gems would receive another jewel if he loved her it was because she shone after fauntleroy had thus spent a few empty years coruscating continually an unnatural light the source of it, which was merely his gold, began to grow more shallow, and finally became exhausted. He saw himself in imminent peril of losing all that had heretofore distinguished him, and conscious of no innate worth to fall back upon, he recoiled from this calamity with the instinct of a soul shrinking from annihilation to avoid it wretched man or rather to defer it if but for a month a day or only to procure himself the life of a few breaths more amid the false glitter which was now less his own than ever he made himself guilty of a crime It was just the sort of crime, growing out of its artificial state, which society, unless it should change its entire constitution for this man's unworthy sake, neither could nor ought to pardon. More safely might it pardon murder. Fauntleroy's guilt was discovered. He fled. His wife perished, by the necessity of her innate nobleness in its alliance with a being so ignoble and betwixt her mother's death and her father's ignominy his daughter was left worse than orphaned. There was no pursuit after Fauntleroy. His family connections, who had great wealth, made such arrangements with those whom he had attempted to wrong as secured him from the retribution that would have overtaken an unfriended criminal. The wreck of his estate was divided among his creditors. His name, in a very brief space, was forgotten by the multitude who had passed it so diligently from mouth to mouth. Seldom, indeed, was it recalled even by his closest former intimates. Nor could it have been otherwise. The man had laid no real touch on any mortal's heart. Being a mere image, an optical delusion created by the sunshine of prosperity, it was his law to vanish into the shadow of the first intervening cloud he seemed to leave no vacancy, a phenomenon which, like many others that attended his brief career, went far to prove the elusiveness of his existence. Not, however, that the physical substance of Fauntleroy had literally melted into vapor. He had fled northward to the New England metropolis and had taken up his abode under another name in a squalid street or court of the older portion of the city. There he dwelt among poverty-stricken wretches, sinners, and forlorn good people, Irish, and whomsoever else were neediest. Many families were clustered in each house together, above stairs and below, in the little peaked garrets, and even in the dusky cellars. The house where Fauntleroy paid weekly rent for a chamber and a closet had been a stately habitation in its day an old colonial governor had built it and lived there long ago and held his levies in a great room where now slept twenty irish bedfellows and died in fauntleroy's chamber which his embroidered and white-wigged ghost still haunted Tattered hangings, a marble hearth traversed with many cracks and fissures, a richly carved oaken mantelpiece partly hacked away for kindling stuff, a stuccoed ceiling defaced with great unsightly patches of the naked laths. Such was the chamber's aspect, as if with its splinters and rags of dirty splendor it were a kind of practical gibe at this poor ruined man of show. At first, and at irregular intervals, his relatives allowed Fauntleroy a little pittance to sustain life, not from any love, perhaps, but lest poverty should compel him, by new offences, to add more shame to that with which he had already stained them. But he showed no tendency to further guilt. His character appeared to have been radically changed, as indeed from its shallowness it well might, by his miserable fate or it may be the traits now seen in him were portions of the same character, presenting itself in another phase. Instead of any longer seeking to live in the sight of the world, his impulse was to shrink into the nearest obscurity, and to be unseen of men were it possible, even while standing before their eyes. He had no pride, it was all trodden in the dust, no ostentation for how could it survive when there was nothing left of fauntleroy save penury and shame his very gait demonstrated that he would gladly have faded out of view and have crept about invisibly for the sake of sheltering himself from the irksomeness of a human glance hardly it was averred within the memory of those who knew him now had he the hardihood to show his full front to the world He skulked in corners and crept about in a sort of noonday twilight, making himself gray and misty at all hours, with his morbid intolerance of sunshine. In his torpid despair, however, he had done an act which that condition of the spirit seems to prompt almost as often as prosperity and hope. Fauntleroy was again married he had taken to wife a forlorn meek-spirited feeble young woman a seamstress whom he found dwelling with her mother in a contiguous chamber of the old gubernatorial residence this poor phantom as the beautiful and noble companion of his former life had done brought him a daughter and sometimes, as from one dream into another, Fauntleroy looked forth out of his present grimy environment into that past magnificence, and wondered whether the grandee of yesterday or the pauper of to-day were real. But in my mind the one and the other were alike impalpable. In truth it was Fauntleroy's fatality to behold whatever he touched dissolve. After a few years his second wife, dim shadow that she had always been, faded finally out of the world, and left Fauntleroy to deal as he might with their pale and nervous child. And by this time among his distant relatives, with whom he had grown a weary thought linked with contagious infamy, and which they were only too willing to get rid of, he was himself supposed to be no more the younger child like his elder one might be considered as the true offspring of both parents and as the reflection of their state she was a tremulous little creature shrinking involuntarily from all mankind but in timidity and no sour repugnance there was a lack of human substance in her it seemed as if were she to stand up in a sunbeam it would pass right through her figure AND TRACE OUT THE CRACKED AND DUSTY WINDOW-PANES UPON THE NAKED FLOOR. BUT NEVERTHELESS THE POOR CHILD HAD A HEART, AND FROM HER MOTHER'S GENTLE CHARACTER SHE HAD INHERITED A PROFOUND AND STILL CAPACITY OF AFFECTION. AND SO HER LIFE WAS ONE OF LOVE. SHE BESTOWED IT PARTLY ON HER FATHER, BUT IN GREATER PART ON AN IDEA. For Fauntleroy, as they sat by their cheerless fireside, which was no fireside in truth but only a rusty stove, had often talked to the little girl about his former wealth, the noble loveliness of his first wife, and the beautiful child whom she had given him. Instead of the fairy tales which other parents tell, he told Priscilla this and out of the loneliness of her sad little existence Priscilla's love grew, and tended upward, and twined itself perseveringly around this unseen sister, as a grapevine might strive to clamber out of a gloomy hollow among the rocks, and embrace a young tree standing in the sunny warmth above. It was almost like worship, both in its earnestness and in its humility, nor was it the less humble, though the more earnest, because Priscilla could claim human kindred with the being whom she so devoutly loved. As with worship, too, it gave her soul the refreshment of a purer atmosphere. Save for this singular, this melancholy, and yet beautiful affection, the child could hardly have lived— or had she lived with a heart shrunken for lack of any sentiment to fill it she must have yielded to the barren miseries of her position and have grown to womanhood characterless and worthless but now amid all the sombre coarseness of her father's outward life and of her own priscilla had a higher and imaginative life within some faint gleam thereof was often visible upon her face it was as if in her spiritual visits to her brilliant sister a portion of the latter's brightness had permeated our dim priscilla and still lingered shedding a faint illumination through the cheerless chamber after she came back As the child grew up, so pallid and so slender, and with much unaccountable nervousness, and all the weakness of neglected infancy still haunting her, the gross and simple neighbors whispered strange things about Priscilla. The big red Irish matrons, whose innumerable progeny swarmed out of the adjacent doors, used to mock at the pale western child. They fancied, or at least affirmed it between jest and earnest, that she was not so solid flesh and blood as other children, but mixed largely with a thinner element. They called her Ghost Child, and said that she could indeed vanish when she pleased, but could never in her densest moments make herself quite visible. The sun at midday would shine through her in the first grey of the twilight she lost all the distinctness of her outline and if you followed the dim thing into a dark corner behold she was not there and it was true that priscilla had strange ways strange ways and stranger words when she uttered any words at all Never stirring out of the old governor's dusky house, she sometimes talked of distant places and splendid rooms as if she had just left them. Hidden things were visible to her, at least so the people inferred from obscure hints escaping unawares out of her mouth, and silence was audible, and in all the world there was nothing so difficult to be endured by those who had any dark secret to conceal, as the glance of Priscilla's timid and melancholy eyes. Her peculiarities were the theme of continual gossip among the other inhabitants of the gubernatorial mansion. The rumor spread thence into a wider circle. Those who knew old Moody, as he was now called, used often to jeer him at the very street corners about his daughter's gift of second sight and prophecy, It was a period when science, though mostly through its empirical professors, was bringing forward anew a horde of facts and imperfect theories that had partially won credence in elder times, but which modern skepticism had swept away as rubbish. These things were now tossed up again out of the surging ocean of human thought and experience. THE STORY OF PRISCILLA'S PRETERNATURAL MANIFESTATIONS, THEREFORE, ATTRACTED A KIND OF NOTICE OF WHICH IT WOULD HAVE BEEN DEEMED WHOLLY UNWORTHY A FEW YEARS EARLIER. ONE DAY A GENTLEMAN ASCENDED THE CREAKING STAIRCASE AND inquired WHICH WAS OLD MOODY'S CHAMBER DOOR, AND SEVERAL TIMES HE CAME AGAIN. HE WAS A MARVELOUSLY HANDSOME MAN, STILL YOUTHFUL, TOO, AND FASHIONABLY DRESSED except that Priscilla in those days had no beauty, and in the languor of her existence had not yet blossomed into womanhood, there would have been rich food for scandal in these visits, for the girl was unquestionably their sole object, although her father was supposed always to be present. But it must likewise be added there was something about Priscilla that calumny could not meddle with and thus far was she privileged either by the preponderance of what was spiritual or the thin and watery blood that left her cheek so pallid. Yet if the busy tongues of the neighborhood spared Priscilla in one way, they made themselves amends by renewed and wilder babble on another score. They averred that the strange gentleman was a wizard, and that he had taken advantage of priscilla's lack of earthly substance to subject her to himself as his familiar spirit through whose medium he gained cognizance of whatever happened in regions near or remote the boundaries of his power were defined by the verge of the pit of tartarus on the one hand and the third sphere of the celestial world on the other Again they declared their suspicion that the wizard, with all his show of manly beauty, was really an aged and wizened figure, or else that his semblance of a human body was only a necromantic, or perhaps a mechanical contrivance, in which a demon walked about. In proof of it, however, they could merely instance a gold band around his upper teeth, which had once been visible to several old women when he smiled at them from the top of the governor's staircase of course this was all absurdity or mostly so but after every possible deduction there remained certain very mysterious points about the stranger's character as well as the connection that he established with priscilla Its nature at that period was even less understood than now, when miracles of this kind have grown so absolutely stale, that I would gladly, if the truth allowed, dismiss the whole matter from my narrative. We must now glance backward in quest of the beautiful daughter of Fauntleroy's prosperity. What had become of her? Fauntleroy's only brother, a bachelor and with no other relative so near, had adopted the forsaken child. She grew up in affluence, with native graces clustering luxuriantly about her. In her triumphant progress towards womanhood she was adorned with every variety of feminine accomplishment. But she lacked a mother's care. With no adequate control on any hand, for a man, however stern, however wise, can never sway and guide a female child, her character was left to shape itself. There was good in it and evil. Passionate, self-willed, and imperious, she had a warm and generous nature, showing the richness of the soil, however, chiefly by the weeds that flourished in it and choked up the herbs of grace. In her girlhood her uncle died as Fauntleroy was supposed to be likewise dead and no other heir was known to exist, his wealth devolved on her, although dying suddenly the uncle left no will. After his death there were obscure passages in Zenobia's history. There were whispers of an attachment and even a secret marriage with a fascinating and accomplished but unprincipled young man. THE INCIDENTS AND APPEARANCES, HOWEVER, WHICH LED TO THIS SURMISE, SOON PASSED AWAY AND WERE FORGOTTEN. NOR WAS HER REPUTATION SERIOUSLY AFFECTED BY THE REPORT. IN FACT, SO GREAT WAS HER NATIVE POWER AND INFLUENCE, AND SUCH SEEMED THE CARELESS PURITY OF HER NATURE, THAT WHATEVER ZENOBIA DID WAS GENERALLY ACKNOWLEDGED AS RIGHT FOR HER TO DO. THE WORLD NEVER CRITICIZED HER SO HARSHLY AS IT DOES MOST WOMEN WHO TRANSCEND ITS RULES. IT ALMOST YIELDED ITS ASSENT WHEN IT BEHELD HER STEPPING OUT OF THE COMMON PATH AND ASSERTING THE MORE EXTENSIVE PRIVILEGES OF HER SEX, BOTH THEORETICALLY AND BY HER PRACTICE. THE SPHERE OF ORDINARY WOMANHOOD WAS FELT TO BE NARROWER THAN HER DEVELOPMENT REQUIRED. A portion of Zenobia's more recent life is told in the foregoing pages. Partly in earnest, and, I imagine as was her disposition, half in a proud jest, or in a kind of recklessness that had grown upon her out of some hidden grief, she had given her countenance and promised liberal pecuniary aid to our experiment of a better social state. And Priscilla followed her to Blythedale, the sole bliss of her life had been a dream of this beautiful sister, who had never so much as known of her existence. By this time, too, the poor girl was enthralled in an intolerable bondage from which she must either free herself or perish. She deemed herself safest near Zenobia, into whose large heart she hoped to nestle. One evening, months after Priscilla's departure, when Moody, or shall we call him Fauntleroy, was sitting alone in the state chamber of the old governor, there came footsteps up the staircase. There was a pause on the landing-place. A lady's musical yet haughty accents were heard making an inquiry from some denizen of the house who had thrust a head out of a contiguous chamber. There was then a knock at Moody's door. "'Come in,' said he, and Zenobia entered.' The details of the interview that followed being unknown to me, while notwithstanding it would be a pity quite to lose the picturesqueness of the situation, I shall attempt to sketch it, mainly from fancy, although with some general grounds of surmise in regard to the old man's feelings." She gazed wonderingly at the dismal chamber dismal to her who beheld it only for an instant, and how much more so to him into whose brain each bare spot on the ceiling, every tatter of the paper hangings, and all the splintered carvings of the mantelpiece, seen wearily through long years, had worn their several prints. Inexpressibly miserable is this familiarity with objects that have been from the first disgustful. I have received a strange message, said Zenobia, after a moment's silence, requesting, or rather enjoining it upon me, to come hither. Rather from curiosity than any other motive, and because, though a woman, I have not all the timidity of one, I have complied. Can it be you, sir, who thus summoned me? It was, answered Moody. And what was your purpose? she continued. You require charity, perhaps? in that case the message might have been more fitly worded. But you are old and poor, and age and poverty should be allowed their privileges. Tell me, therefore, to what extent you need my aid. Put up your purse, said the supposed mendicant, with an inexplicable smile. Keep it, keep all your wealth, until I demand it all, or none. My message had no such end in view." You are beautiful, they tell me, and I desired to look at you. He took the one lamp that showed the discomfort and sordidness of his abode, and approaching Zenobia held it up so as to gain the more perfect view of her from top to toe. So obscure was the chamber that you could see the reflection of her diamonds thrown upon the dingy wall and flickering with the rise and fall of Zenobia's breath. It was the splendor of those jewels on her neck, like lamps that burn before some fair temple, and the jeweled flower in her hair, more than the murky yellow light, that helped him to see her beauty. But he beheld it, and grew proud at heart. His own figure, in spite of his mean habiliments, assumed an air of state and grandeur. "'It is well,' cried old Moody, "'keep your wealth. You are right worthy of it. Keep it, therefore, but with one condition only. Zenobia thought the old man beside himself, and was moved with pity. "'Have you none to care for?' you asked she. "'No daughter, no kind-hearted neighbor, no means of procuring the attendance which you need. Tell me once again, can I do nothing for you?' "'Nothing,' he replied. "'I have beheld what I wished.' now leave me, linger not a moment longer, or I may be tempted to say what would bring a cloud over that queenly brow. Keep all your wealth, but with only this one condition. Be kind, be no less kind than sisters are to my poor Priscilla." And it may be, after Zenobia withdrew, Fauntleroy paced his gloomy chamber, and communed with himself as follows, or at all events it is the only solution which I can offer of the enigma presented in his character. "'I am unchanged, the same man as of yore,' said he. "'True, my brother's wealth, he dying intestate, is legally my own. I know it, yet of my own choice I live a beggar and go meanly clad, and hide myself behind a forgotten ignominy. Looks this like ostentation?' ah but in zenobia i live again beholding her so beautiful so fit to be adorned with all imaginable splendor of outward state the cursed vanity which half a lifetime since dropped off like tatters of once gaudy apparel from my debased and ruined person is all renewed for her sake were i to reappear my shame would go with me from darkness into daylight ZENOBIA HAS THE SPLENDOR AND NOT THE SHAME. LET THE WORLD ADMIRE HER AND BE DAZZLED BY HER, THE BRILLIANT CHILD OF MY PROSPERITY. IT IS Fauntleroy THAT STILL SHINES THROUGH HER. BUT THEN PERHAPS ANOTHER THOUGHT OCCURRED TO HIM. MY POOR PRISCILLA, AM I JUST TO HER IN SURRENDERING ALL TO THIS BEAUTIFUL ZENOBIA? PRISCILLA, I LOVE HER BEST, I LOVE HER ONLY but with shame, not pride. So dim, so pallid, so shrinking, the daughter of my long calamity. Wealth were but a mockery in Priscilla's hands. What is its use except to fling a golden radiance around those who grasp it? Yet let Zenobia take heed. Priscilla shall have no wrong. But while the man of show thus meditated— that very evening, so far as I can adjust the dates of these strange incidents, Priscilla, poor pallid flower, was either snatched from Zenobia's hand or flung wilfully away. End of chapter 22